for those of you who know me, uh, you would know that I'm a pretty big baseball fan. Um, as years have gone by, I've kind of paid less attention to it as I've grown to have a family and to have a job and to do education for seminary and things like that, so I don't really get to, to watch it too much anymore, but if you were to ask me the question of if you could choose any team in the history to ever play on, what team would you choose? And I'm not talking about just a specific team, but a specific year of that team, right? Now, some of you might be able to answer that for if you're a baseball fan and if you're a Reds fan, there's probably a certain year that you would have loved to partner with some of the people on that team. But I can tell you mine as a Red Sox fan, it is the 2004 Boston Red Sox. First of all, they were a very fun team. They had a lot of fun. There was a lot of crazy guys on that team. But, of course, second of all, it was the year that they won the World Series for the first time in 86 years. If you knew you could choose to be on a winning team, wouldn't you choose that team to be on? When we look at Christ's resurrection... We know who wins. Not just who wins in the future, but we know that Christ already has won. And so if that's true, then we get to choose to already know we're going to be on the winning team. And that should affect the way that we live in the present and also the hope that we have for the future. So this morning, I want us to take a look at Christ's resurrection kind of threefold in a past, present, future kind of look. And I want us to see how this single moment in history in the past affects everything that is to come in the future, which includes our present 2,000 years later. So if you have your Bibles and you want to, to turn there, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it'll be up there on the screen as well if you want to follow along. 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. So I want us to begin by looking at the reason we celebrate Easter. We're going to first look at the past event of Christ's resurrection. There's a couple things that we need to grasp here. First of all, this may sound like repeat for those of you here at sunrise, but just bear with me here. First of all is that it's 
factually true. Right? So what was going on in Corinth? Well, the reason, part of the reason Paul is writing about this in 1 Corinthians 15 is you have people in the city of Corinth who are saying that there is no resurrection in the future for those who believe in Jesus. That there's not going to be a resurrection. And so Paul's argument here leading up until this passage is if there's no resurrection in the future for those who believe in Christ, then Jesus was never really resurrected himself. His whole point is, if there is no Christ's resurrection, then of course there's no resurrection for believers. But if Christ was resurrected, there must be a resurrection for believers. He sees that the two are intricately linked together to each other, that you cannot pull them apart. And he makes this final point in verse 19, right before our passage. He says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. And that's true. If Christ was never raised from the dead, there's no hope for the future for any of us. And right here in the present, if we're only hope is the present, we are to be pitied. There's nothing to live for. Nothing whatsoever. There's no future hope. But of course, Paul doesn't believe that, right? Paul makes then the specific statement we started with here in verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He was saying, hypothetically, if this was true, there would be no hope. It would all be useless. But it's not useless because Christ has been raised. This is a fact. Christ has been raised. Christ is still alive when Paul was writing. Christ is still alive this morning when we gather together. It wasn't some conspiracy theory where the disciples said, let's say Christ was resurrected so that we can start a movement. It wasn't that the disciples went and hid the body like the Jewish leaders were trying to say. Jesus really is alive. In fact, everything that happened that weekend is true. The beatings. Jesus was flogged. He was spat on. His clothes were ripped. He had a crown of thorns on his head. Jesus was at the cross. That was true. He hangs on the cross. The world around him becomes completely dark. And the Father himself forsakes his own Son as he puts the sins of mankind on him. The grave. Jesus' death was real. It's true that at that point Jesus had no breath in his lungs. There was no heartbeat. He was in a tomb for three days. But if all of those are true, then also what is true is the resurrection. That his body was brought back to life, but in a glorified sense. But not so glorified that he also still had the holes in his hands. It's important that we declare this because all of our hope, as Paul just said, rests on the resurrection being true. If that's not true, then none of the rest of what I'm about to say matters. But it is true. But then Paul goes on to explain that because this is true, there's more to come. Verse 20, look at what he says in the second half. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Paul says Christ is the first fruits when he is raised from the dead. 
Now, if you understand the term first fruits, you know it goes all the way back into the Old Testament where what happened was as it was a very much agricultural community and what they would do, what they were required to do, right, by their relationship with God, by their holy law, was to offer their first and best crops to God. And this was a a sign for them to say that there was more yet to come. That there was more fruits that were going to come as they offer their first fruits to God. This is a way of assuring that there was more blessings with more crops. So when Paul says here that Christ is the first fruits in his resurrection, there's two things. First of all, we find out that Christ's resurrection is the first resurrection and the best resurrection. There's no greater resurrection than Christ's. But we also find out is Christ's resurrection means there's more to come. That those who are united to Christ by faith in Christ will one day also be resurrected. Now we're going to see more of what that future resurrection looks like in a minute. But the point here is it's linked to Jesus' resurrection. Right? That our resurrection, our future resurrection is linked to Christ's historical, factual, true resurrection. The only hope for more to come rests in first Christ was resurrected. And the reason why all of our hope is in Christ is because Christ in his resurrection has reversed what nobody else could reverse. Look at verse 21 and 22. For as by a man came death, By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. By a single man, Adam, came death. Right? But also in Christ, in the God-man, Jesus, resurrection enters. In Adam, sin and death spreads to all men. Men are born in sin. Men live in sin. But in Christ, sin is defeated. And that hope of future resurrection is now available to all men. But it's not that all men automatically receive resurrection. Right? You might be tempted to believe that. Verse 22, right? In Christ shall all be made alive. So all people are going to experience this resurrection, but notice verse 23 clarifies the information for us. But each in his own order, the Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. It's not just that all people are going to be resurrected and enter into glory, it's the fact that those who belong to Jesus. Let me try to explain kind of what what Paul's trying to to do here. If you take a look at human history in all of Scripture, you see everything starts back in Genesis chapter 3, right? We know creation happens, but all of sin really starts in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve are faced with this decision, and we know that they sin. And from that point on, this little moment in history now begins to spread throughout all of human history where it slowly gets bigger and bigger, right? Death spreads to all men. Sin spreads to all men. And now we come upon Jesus, the one who didn't sin. And Jesus 
dies and is resurrected. And in that, resurrection now enters into human history. So now we have this point where history stops for a moment. And it actually gets reversed. Where as people were once moving away from God, now in Christ's resurrection people can start moving back to God. Now we know that sin continues on, right? Not everybody belongs to Christ. But now we have this little moment that starts working its way back to God and it starts to spread yet again. I mean, just look at how small the first thing was, right? We have Jesus and his disciples when Jesus is resurrected. And we know by the time we get to Pentecost and Acts, right, that the church starts to grow a little bit. But we're talking a few thousand people right there at the beginning. But now fast forward 2,000 years later, and where are we at? We have the gospel of Christ that has reached the United States, that has reached South America, that has reached Asia and China, and that has reached the Middle East again now, and Iran, and all over the world now, the gospel has spread and made its way as the news of the resurrection has gone forth, as Christ has reversed what Adam first set into motion. Think of it kind of like, If we take a pandemic, for example, let's not use COVID. We've had enough of COVID for a year, right? Let's talk about the flu pandemic that happened, you know, a hundred and some years ago or whatever. The flu started to spread, right? Slowly but surely, we start to see it and move faster and faster the more people have it. But now, look at where we're at now with the flu, right? Every winter, get the shot, you're good. And it's because in a moment of history, right, everything started to reverse, right? You had people's bodies that started to build up antibodies, and that was passed on. You had a vaccine that was created that now starts to make it so people are, have those antibodies. And everything that once was spreading only death has now been reversed in the opposite direction. And now we get to a point where, yes, people still do go in the other direction, right? We still know that the flu still kills people every year, right? People pass away from it every year, but not nearly as many as if that single event in history hadn't reversed it. So the reversal has a specific moment, a root in a specific moment in history. And for sin, that specific moment is Christ's resurrection, At Christ's resurrection, everything starts to reverse back in the way that it was supposed to. So your assurance for now, in the present, and your assurance for the future all rest in a past event in Christ's resurrection. Your only hope in your future death, not being a hopeless death, is in the one who was already raised from the dead. Your only hope in fighting sin in your present situation is in someone who's already defeated sin. Your fears, your anger, your lusts, your desires, the empty pursuits of life only find victory in Christ and his death and resurrection. Because in Christ's resurrection, those who belong to Christ have a guarantee of victory. If you've trusted in Christ, if you've committed your life to him, you have the promise of a future resurrection. 
you know, one thing we decided to do this year with our kids, getting to the age that they are, and as warmer weather starts to come, is we decided to buy a zoo membership, right, over at the Cincinnati Zoo. And now I know COVID has made things a little different, but just imagine that we're back to normal life, right? Because we're, we've purchased those passes as zoo members, we can show up anytime and get in. Because in the past, we've purchased our membership. For those who belong to Christ, he's already purchased your resurrection. So when that day comes for you to enter, you automatically get to because your membership has already been purchased by him in the past. So that's the past event, Christ's resurrection. Now we're going to fast forward to the future event, which is Christ's culmination. Right? The day of resurrection for those who belong to Christ. When is that day? People have made predictions throughout history of when that day might be. Let's look at what Paul says, verse 23. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, and then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. There's your details of when it happens, when Christ comes. That's the day of your resurrection. Nobody knows what day it's going to be. Nobody knows what hour it's going to be. But we have this assurance. He's coming, and when he comes, we get resurrected. But there's more that happens on that day. Let's look at a couple other things. First, we find that the kingdom is given to the Father. Verse 24. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Christ, as the Son of God, will at the end give that kingdom back over to God the Father. Ultimately, on that final day, it's going to be the same as it was on the first day, right? God dwelling with his people in the beginning, God dwelling with his people at the end. It's not that Jesus won't be there. Obviously, he will as part of the Trinity of Father, Son, and Spirit. But what is Christ's reign up until that point is then shifted specifically to God the Father, handed back over to him. Right? Revelation tells us that this is the day when heaven and earth become one yet again, and God dwells with his people. And the reason this this happens is because God is the one who gave Christ, this realm to reign, right? Verse 27, for God has put all things in subjection under his Christ's feet. So we find out that all things are subjected to Christ because God put them there, but then continue on and it says, but when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put things in subjection under him. So it's saying God put all things under Christ, which means God isn't under Christ. Right? That ultimately Christ is going to hand it back over to God. Christ isn't reigning over God the Father. One day he's going to hand it back over to him. Right? Verse 28. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him, God, who put all things in subjection under him. On that final day, God receives all that is his. And do you see the purpose for it there at the end at verse 28? That God may be all in all. 
from that day when the kingdom's handed back over to God and from that day into all eternity, God is going to receive all praise, all glory, be all things because he is the gracious, holy, merciful, just, loving, and righteous God. If you belong to Christ, this is your future. For all eternity, the resurrected version of yourself will praise God and enjoy Him forever. And it's all yours because of Christ's resurrection. Because by Christ's resurrection, all enemies will ultimately be defeated. If you didn't notice, there's something that happens before Christ hands the kingdom back over to God the Father. Look back at verse 24. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. So one day, every rule, every authority, every power is going to be destroyed. Christ has this specific reign at this moment in time with a purpose that Christ is going to defeat every every rule, every authority, every power, every enemy that exists, right? It culminates here with all enemies being put under the feet of Jesus. Verse 25, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The reference back to Psalm 110 verse 1, right? It says, God says, sit at my right hand until I put all enemies underneath your feet. God's speaking that to Jesus. The day is going to come when every enemy is put under the feet of Christ. Even the last enemy, what we may consider to be the worst enemy, verse 26. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Now you may ask the question, if this is future tense, that the last enemy to be destroyed is death when Christ eventually comes again, well then what did Christ's resurrection accomplish? Didn't he already defeat death? There's a difference here between defeating death and destroying death, right? Christ has already defeated death in his resurrection, but when he actually destroys death is when he comes again. And all of us who belong to Christ that have been taken by death are resurrected yet again. Finally, death sees its destruction. It's already been defeated. There's already assurance that it's going to happen, but we don't see the full fulfillment of its destruction until Christ raises all of us up that death once has taken. This is your promise of victory, church. In Christ's resurrection. Christ's resurrection isn't some random event. It's going somewhere. There's a purpose to it. There's a culmination to it. And it ends with your resurrection with all enemies being defeated and the kingdom handed back to God the Father so that we might enjoy Him forever. So let me assure you with this. In Christ's resurrection, your victory is a sure thing. There is a certainty to it. You don't have to question whether you're going to be resurrected or not. You can have assurance that it is a sure thing. If you belong to Christ, His resurrection already guarantees you are going to have that as your future victory. Now, who wouldn't want this? 
We talked about it at the beginning, right? Who wouldn't want a guaranteed win? I'll tell you who doesn't want it. People who don't think that eternity with God the Father is the greatest thing that they could possibly have. I'm convinced that many people who call themselves Christians in our world have become far too easily pleased. People have begun to see victory as financial stability. We've seen victory as popularity. We've seen victory as getting approval from the people around us. We've seen victory as getting a good education so I can be the most intellectual person around. We've seen victory as me or my kids being good at athletics. And we've lost sight of what is best and the most satisfying victory, which is that you get to enjoy God forever. We've forgotten that there's a future element here. We, we tend to focus only on what we can see, only what we can chase after now. But let me remind you that for the New Testament church and for our brothers and sisters of the church around the world that face death each and every day for being in Christ, this is their hope. This is what's worthwhile to them. As they face death, their assurance is because there is a final day. When they know they're going to get to enjoy God forever. This is all that matters to them. In fact, I would assure you, if you pay attention to this verse, the athletics in our world, the money in our world, the intellect in our world, the approval of other people in our world, all end up under Christ's feet. And you're left with one thing. Looking Jesus in the face. No hope in those other things. You're left looking at him and at him alone. And for those who belong to him, it's a great joy to look at him and him alone because we know we're being resurrected, brought to life, and we get to enter into the kingdom forever. We know with certainty that this is the greatest reality that anyone could ever ask for. So what about now? What does that mean for us right now, right? We, we know that there's a future hope. We know it's based in Christ's past resurrection. What does that mean for me today? Which brings us to the last part, Christ's reign. We spent a lot of time focused on these two other elements. And sure, we can hold on to future hope, but what do we do until then? Do we just simply sit around and wait? Or is there something else to do? I want us to just touch on one specific point in this passage that we see here. There's not a whole lot in this passage about present situations. But there is something that we're told. Verse 25. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Now we know that The day Christ comes is when all enemies are finally under his feet because the last one to be destroyed is death. So what does that mean is happening right now for Christ? That there is a progression of more and more enemies being put under the feet of Christ every day of our lives. From the moment of Christ's resurrection until the day that he comes again and we have our resurrection, this is reality. Christ reigns and is putting the enemies underneath his feet. That doesn't mean that there's not going to be suffering, that there's not going to be death, that there's not going to be hardships, but it does mean that Christ's reign is spreading. Slowly but surely, Christ's enemies are continually being put underneath his feet. 
you might look around the world and say, are you sure about that? Right? Are you sure that Christ's enemies are being put under his feet? Because it might not feel like it. Let me just encourage you to take a moment and think about human history since Christ. The early Christians thought they had reached the end. When they finally had gotten the gospel throughout the whole Roman Empire, and we have Emperor Constantine declare Rome a Christian empire. The Christians thought they had reached the end, right? The gospel has reached the ends of the earth. The Roman Empire has now been saved in some sense. But yet, there were continents where the gospel hadn't even touched yet. Right? America wasn't even a thought at that point. Or you think about when people first did come to America, right? Seeking their religious freedoms. And they thought they had this golden age ahead of them. Of all this land of when we were going to finally be able to worship freely. This must be the end. This must be the day that Jesus comes. All of our enemies are finally under Christ's feet. But let's not forget that China wasn't a Christian nation. Asia hadn't been evangelized. South America hadn't been evangelized. Now we have the Middle East that had turned in a sense, right? And look at our world now. How much of our world has been finally now reached with Christ? We have China where the church is starting to grow. We have Iran of all places where the church is growing in the quickest speeds right now. Muslims coming to know Jesus. We have Brazil as a country that's starting to be Christianized. We have the United States that once was Christian, seems not to be right now, and who knows where we're going to head, but it's never been easy, church. There's a reason why in Revelation it says that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. God progressively uses people's lives to spread the reign of Christ. I can promise you, though, in 500 AD, there were more enemies under Christ's feet than when Christ was first resurrected. And in 1000 AD, there was more than in 500 AD. In 1500, there was more than 1000. And here in 2000, there was more than there was in 1500. Christ's reign is spreading. It is. Let's not forget that Jesus describes it to us, right, as someone who puts a little bit of yeast, right, a little bit of leaven into some dough, and slowly it starts to grow. Or that he says it's, it's like a mustard seed that you plant. You know how long it takes for a mustard seed to become the tree that it becomes? It's a slow spread. But it's a guaranteed spread. That's the point here. The reality is Christ's resurrection guarantees victory. Victory in the future that we will one day be resurrected, but victory now as more enemies continually to be placed under the reign of Christ. So what does it mean for you and me today? If Christ is reigning today, what are we to do? Let me skip over to the end of this chapter. Verse 58. Let's read that, and that gives us what to do. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord 
your labor is not in vain. So what do you do? You always abound in the Lord's work because it's never in vain. Why is it never in vain? Because your victory is guaranteed. Right? It might mean that you share the gospel with ten people and only five trust in Jesus. It might mean you share the gospel with a hundred people and only one comes to know Jesus. Right? We've got to stop thinking in terms of Christ's reign and victory as percentages. Right? We can't think of it that way. Right? God has declared in His Word, in Christ's resurrection, victory is going to happen. Christ's reign is going to spread. Your resurrection is going to happen. We have to also remember what Paul said all the way back at the beginning of 1 Corinthians where he says the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. So if you think if I, I have to get to 90% success rate in order to be considered faithful, you're wrong. It's a foolish message to those who are perishing. True victory is on God's timeline as God defines it. God says, I will draw people to Christ. I will advance Christ's reign, but I will do it on my time frame. So here's the promise. Any work that you do for Christ is never worthless. Never. It always has value to it. So you are to always abound in the Lord's work. Let me hit two things of what that might mean for your life. First of all, abound in the Lord's work in your own life. Continue to check your own heart. Continue to submit yourself to Christ's reign each and every day. But second, bringing others into Christ's reign. Tell them about Christ. Show the victory that you already have in Christ. And as you do this work, you are to remain steadfast. You are to persevere. Keep on going. Don't stop. And you are to be immovable not deterred in any other direction by any other thing in this world. This is what your life is for if you belong to Jesus, to do the Lord's work, to do it always. Do we know what the word always means? Right? That it's at the heart of everything that we're doing constantly, our thoughts, our desires, our actions. And then we're supposed to abound in it, right? Not that we're just supposed to think about it sometimes, but it's supposed to be an abundance in what we're doing. Let me take these two words for a second. If I say, I always take out the trash, which is true, actually, what does that mean? Not a single person in my house ever walks out the door with the trash, right? There's not a single moment where anybody else does it. So what does that mean to say, I'm always abounding in the Lord's work? Always. It means there's not a single moment of my life where I'm thinking about something apart from the Lord's work. It doesn't mean you can't do other activities. It means it's always in the mindset of doing it in the Lord's way for the Lord's work. Or if I say to you that there's an abundance of flowers at the store, what are you expecting when you walk in that store? Right? Flowers and more than enough flowers, right? If I say there's an abundance, I don't mean, oh, there might be three or four left. 
I mean, there's going to be more than you could ever expect there. And your work in the Lord is supposed to be in abundance. It's supposed to abound. Brothers and sisters, since you are promised victory in the greatest work possible, why would you do anything else? Christ's resurrection is the greatest resurrection, but it's also the, just the beginning resurrection. There's more to come. One day, every power, every authority, every rule, every enemy will be placed under Christ's feet. And those who belong to Christ will find themselves victorious because we will be resurrected and enter into eternal joy with God the Father. But while we wait for that day, Christ reigns right now. He's continually getting the enemies put under his feet. With that kind of guarantee for victory, what else in the world would you want to do with your life? The work of Christ is the only work that will matter for all eternity. When you show up on that final day, the question is not going to be asked to you were you friendly? Were you generous? Were you a good person? The question is going to be, did your friendliness, your generosity, and you being a good person lead anybody to Jesus? It's not just, did you try to be kind and friendly but never tell anybody about Jesus? That's not what the question is going to be. The question is, were you always abounding in the Lord's work? Does your life result in submitting yourself to Christ and bringing others into Christ's reign as well. I want to encourage you today that Christ's work is the only work worth doing. I didn't didn't say you can't do other activities, right? It's the only work worth doing, and you have promised victory in that work. Promised victory, guaranteed by the resurrection of Jesus. So I want to encourage you today that whether you're at home, whether you're at your job, whether you're at the grocery, talking to your neighbor, talking to your family, at the school, at a sporting event, always abound in the Lord's work because you are promised that you will be victorious in it. And that rests on the resurrection of Jesus. Let's pray together.